early in the career doing all the mistakes you could do, buying stocks that I have no idea what they do, on tips from people who have no idea what they do, and then actually having a couple of wins to embolden you to put more money in, and then it just being eviscerated. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank you for joining that mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Mike Philbrick. Mike, are you ready to join the mission? I am absolutely ready to join that mission. I love it. Let's knock down a few more people on the counter to a million. Exactly. And that's how we do it. One person at a time, one listener at a time. And I want to introduce my audience to this one person, Mike Philbrick. He's the CEO of Resolve Asset Management. He has over 30 years of experience in investment management, serving in senior investment industry positions with several major financial services firms and is responsible for investment decisions, coaching, and strategic leadership, and has co-authored the book, Adaptive Asset Allocation, Dynamic Global Portfolios to Profit in Good Times and Bad, as well as several white papers and research focused on adding new insights to the quantitative global asset allocation space. Adaptive asset allocation and return stacked portfolio solutions have been made popularized by he and his team at Resolve. Proceeding his investment career, Mike played professional football in the CFL, winning the Grey Cup Championship in 1999 and being inducted into the Hamilton Tiger Cat Walk of Fame in 2015. <laughs> Mike, take a minute and tell us the unique value you're bringing to this wonderful world. Oh, wow. Well, I think I, I've got a lot of battle scars to uh, share with folks and some perspectives, I think, that are a little bit different. So having played in sports, you know, there's a, a whole level of candor that I think we employ at Resolve that is, you know, extreme, if mm -hmm. you will. And it stems from my days and being uh, coached in, in that domain and having clear goals and having them set regularly. I think those are some things. And, and I, I think I've got a lot of battle scars to share mm. with people on how they might think through some of the very deceptive traps that are out there that can confound your investment success. Mm. So it's kind of a full contact company, oh, huh? Is it ever? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're in a full contact world of investment. Yeah, we, we tried to get Terry Tate, the office linebacker on, but you know, we tried to hire him, but he was just too expensive. Yeah. And <laughs> just getting people knocked out in the, you know, in the lobby and stuff. It just, it just gets yeah. ugly after a while. You got to put your, you got to put your cover on, on your TPS reports. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> There's two things that I want to talk to you briefly about before we get into the big question, given that you're, you know, an expert in global diversification, risk reduction, managed futures, these types of things. The first thing I wanted to talk about is like, given all of your experience in that space, take take somewhat of an amateur like myself or many of my listeners that we invest and we invest in asset allocation and we're looking for ways to reduce risk. And I know that you've spent a lot of time looking at like the correlation between assets and, you know, and I'm not sure if all of my listeners can get access, for instance, to the futures market in certain ways. So 
I'm just trying to think about what are some general guidelines that you could give us on risk management? And then later, we'll talk a little bit about, about what we talked about before, about understanding the debt mm -hmm. situation and what that means. But I really would love just to hear a little brief, given your battle scars, about risk management. Yeah, I'm, I think that, that you don't have to go into the futures market to start thinking about diversification, mm. right? We live in a world where we don't know nearly as much as we think we know. There was a quote in, uh, I should have looked it up, The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, where uh, I forget the, the fella's name, but he's holding a, a handful of sand. And this is his knowledge. He has all the knowledge in the world. And he thinks he knows so much. But while he's holding that handful of sand, he's standing on a beach. What you don't know trumps by orders of magnitude what you think you know. And no matter how much you want to in put time into the initial buy decision, the sell decision, you just don't know a lot. And I think that's something to keep in mind, which leads to, well, if I don't know a lot, I should prioritize preparation over prediction, mm. which is another way to say prioritize diversification, right? So right. We, if we go back to a simple mental model, we have two dimensions. One is inflation and one is growth. And growth can be either rising or falling and inflation can be rising or falling. Those create four quadrants. Those four quadrants have asset classes that do well when inflation is rising and growth, global growth, is enough that it can withstand that inflation. Think, you know, 2003 to 2008, China's growing, commodities are growing through the roof, but there's enough growth in the world that the price of inflation can actually be absorbed in the economy. Well, in that case, you're going to want to look to emerging markets. You're going to want to look to emerging market debt. You're going to want to look to commodities. Those are going to be the best performing assets. Now, contrast that when you have falling growth and disinflation, i.e. deflation or disinflationary times. Now you're talking about return of your principal, not on your principal. So things like gold and bonds do well. Now, I think we want to think through those four quadrants. I'm not going to go all through all four of them. Mm. And we probably want to balance the risk that we're going to take in those four quadrants and then hold a position there and consider that a neutral portfolio. Consider that the sort of the market portfolio, the global market portfolio by risk of all the assets that could be owned. Then if we would like to take bets against that, i.e. we'd like to tilt that, we should measure our success in tilting against that portfolio that has these sort of thoughtful construction where it says, well, I don't, I, I'm wrapping my hands around all of the world's assets. Mm. And they're trading every day. Everyone, someone's trading gold and bonds and stocks, et cetera. I own all those risk premia and I've balanced them off in a way that makes sense. Now, if I want to impart some sort of prediction to that, I can do so, but I've also got a measuring stick against which I can measure my performance against what I think is a pretty good portfolio that accounts for the fact that we don't know much and we certainly don't know the future. And I think that's those are things that I, I think can help folks from the standpoint of you don't have to go into, you know, really esoteric products, mm. lock yourself up for long periods of time. That's not a requirement, actually. Thinking through your portfolio, thinking through three questions that I would consider that people ask themselves about their portfolio. Have I fully exploited diversification? Do I have 
something in my portfolio that responds to these four potential different outcomes. And the second question is, are the risk premiums that I'm harnessing, are they well-balanced? Mm. So for example, you have a 50-50 stock bond portfolio. Well, that's 80% risk in stocks and well, probably 85% risk in stocks and 15% risk in bonds. So while on a capital basis, you have what looks like equal exposure on a risk basis, the maniacs are running the asylum. Mm. Most of the risk in that portfolio is going to come to stocks. And this comes to the last point is, are you allowing the market to dictate the risk and the structural characteristics of your portfolio? Or are you imparting that? Mm. Are you saying, I would like this portfolio of these assets, and I would like the risk to be you know, in this neighborhood? And I think if you, it doesn't have to get much fancier than that. Right. You certainly can get a lot of fancy. And in such a portfolio that you've described, if for a typical person that would look at that, one of the questions that I would have is, what is the benchmark that we would use? I don't, I don't like benchmarks at all because I think they mess us up in our minds. But what would be a typical type of benchmark that we would think for that type of portfolio? Benchmark. Right, so you can encompass all the assets globally throughout the world, commodities, stocks, emerging market stocks, developed market stocks, the bond complex, whether those be US bonds or global bonds. So you're really taking the entire investable universe and you're saying, well, I'm going to consider all of that. Right. And then I'm, I want to categorize it into these four areas where they're going to do different things based on the structural economic environment I'm in. Right. And diversification is you know, always having something in your portfolio that's killing it and then have something in your portfolio that's killing you. Mm. That is diversification. Right. So, but now you're harnessing all the risk premiums possible in doing that. That gives you now you could look at the global market portfolio as, as a market cap weighted version right. of that. That is, but that often excludes commodities. It excludes a number of asset classes that actually do well in inflationary times. Right. So you know, for inflation shocks, you're going to want things like, you know, tips, bonds that, that are inflation linked and commodities. Those are the things that do well in those periods mm. of time. And when those are doing well, your bonds, your normal nomin nominal bonds are not going to be doing particularly well, as we noted in 2022 yep. and as we noted today. And the strange thing that's occurring today that has not occurred since the 70s is the correlation between stocks and bonds is also rising, right? So we ha now have a period where the efficient frontier, rather than that being that nicely bent C-shaped mm. curve, is just a straight line. And in fact, in the 70s, it was a straight line. Right. You could add bonds to your stock portfolio, which reduced risk, but there was no curve. There mm. was just a simple reduction of risk. So what does that mean? Well, that also means for a safe withdrawal rates for individual investors, if the volatility of a portfolio is higher, your withdrawal rate is lower. The volatility gremlins eat up your portfolio. So we're in this very strange period today where you're going to have to prioritize diversification in order and include strategies that you may not have heard of, that may not be common, that your friends might not be using mm. in order to try and smooth out the ride a little bit. 2022 was a really tough year. Both stocks and bonds were down you know, about 20% at the same right. time. That hasn't happened in a long time. And would and we then, do that for through like, would we do that through like some examples are in inverse ETFs as an example, mm. where some people may say, okay, I'm going to hold a certain amount of an inverse ETF or another person may say, okay, 
I'm going to think about cash for managing that risk. Or is this, you know, managed futures is the best way to do it. Like what, if you really wanted to then, you know, or is it just build those four quadrants, you know, preparation for those core quadrants and you've got enough? You do. Here's what happens though. So if, we, if and these, these have been built a number of times, Meb Faber's tracked a few of them. Yep. Ray Dalio had one of his mm-hmm. portfolios tracked in the Tony Robbins book, which was just basically a simple ETF portfolio that covered off all of this stuff. The challenge with that portfolio is tracking error, right? Mm. Because, and you mentioned a benchmark. Yeah. I wish people would stick to their benchmark. The benchmark, people are highly susceptible to the benchmark being whatever the friends are doing. Mm. The benchmark for clients in Texas is different than the benchmark for investors in Silicon Valley. Mm. Those are two very different benchmarks. They're both in the United States of America. They're both have their current, their base currency and that whatever they're planning for is denominated in the US dollar. But Texas and Silicon Valley, they're not going to be at all the same portfolio. Right. So, you know, I think that when you when you think about your investment portfolio, and we cover this in the book, that the ultimate goal is to reach the goal that you need to reach in real terms with the kind of the smoothest ride. Mm-hmm. which means if you're going to be diversified like this, you will be underperforming the S&P 500 this year and because you're going to be underperforming whatever has the Magnificent Seven in it. And that is where tracking error gets. Um, and in, you're going to be in, outperforming in that you're going to have lower volatility. Correct. So coming back to what happens in this very well-diversified portfolio, even if you're fully invested, you get a vol of like six or seven, which is very low. Yeah. You also get a return. It's you know kind of six or seven. You get a sharp ratio that's 50 basis points. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, what if that doesn't achieve my financial goals? Well, you <clears> can lever that portfolio. That's where futures can come in to be quite effective oh, okay. in providing the leverage to a portfolio. You can also do return stacking where you can say, okay, well, I, I'm actually, I don't, you know, I don't want all the commodities and that sort of stuff because I don't know them and I'm not comfortable with them yet. Because we did the 03 to 07 run and we loved bricks and we loved Canada and we loved oil. And, you know, the U.S. stock market had its last decade, and then now we don't like any of those things as much anymore. So there's a definitely um, the tastes of the investors change. Mm. But so now you can take this well-diversified portfolio and lever it up. So if you said, well, no, I actually need 10% or 12%. Okay, well, let's take this portfolio and buy $2 for every $1 we have invested. And in doing so, we have a portfolio with a 12 vol. It is a similar vol to, let's say, equities, excluding tail events. And you get equity-like returns. Right. But with a smoother ride, but with tracking error and over a full cycle, which is 10, 12, 15 years, 20 years even as a full cycle. Yeah. I mean, the interest rate cycle went from 82 to 2022. Yeah. That's a 40-year cycle. So Mm. the timelines are, I think this is another one of the major challenges for investors is expanding their timeline and understanding that underperforming for one or two or three years, a benchmark that has little or no relevance to your financial goals is something that's a distraction. Mm. Yep. You mentioned Meb Faber and he's got so much great stuff on this, on his, I love listening to his podcast. He was episode 165 on my worst investment ever. And then mm-hmm. earlier before we turned on, you talked about Corey Hofstein and he's he was episode 60, another, you know, real impressive guys that are doing some yeah. interesting things like yourself. 
And I love both of those guys. Yeah. I wanted to just briefly talk about the idea you were talking about debt. You and I were talking before we turned this on about government debt or debt to GDP and how Mm -hmm. things are different now compared to, let's say, I remember the seventies when I was a kid, you know, I was, you know, we sat in lines at the gas station and stuff like that. And then you had Volcker come in and really start cranking up the interest rates in the early eighties which just was intense, you know, the amount of interest rate increase. And, you know, we're going through a fast increase cycle right now. And I'm just curious, what's the difference or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the main difference is thinking about the debt in the 70s and thinking about, let's say there was 35 cents of debt to the GDP of the nation. So when the central banks are increasing interest rates, they're trying to subdue the demand side of the equation. They're trying to Mm. slow down the growth in the economy. They're trying to slow down the GDP. There is a cost to doing that because this, in the seventies, this 35 cents of debt, whilst you're increasing interest rates, the cost of borrowing is going up for the government. Well, the government's deficit is actually stimulus. It doesn't really matter whether it's fiscal stimulus monetary stimulus or stimulus on bonds that already exist. So in the 70s, when you're going through this period where we had baby boomers coming of age, we had all of the demand for all of the things from housing to washing machines, right? And they had to slow this down. And we got some wage inflation. Wage inflation is a mother trucker. Once that gets going, that's really hard to to stop. But Mm. so you have 35 cents of debt you're paying on that you're increasing what you're paying but you're slowing 100 cents of debt in the economy. So together, there is a slowdown in the economy when you view all of the stimulus going into the okay, economy. Okay, so let me let me just summarize that for a second for the beginners. I'm, my mom's listening, so I'm going to try to explain it that way. So basically, what you're saying is that when you make a ratio of debt to GDP, basically in the 80s, as an example, or the 70s, the debt levels weren't there, that high. They were just 35% of debt to GDP. So now let's just right. put it in 100% terms. GDP is 100, debt's 35. You're trying to slow down what you're earning on that 100. Maybe you're earning you know, 5, 4% or 3% or something, and you're going to slow that down by slowing down that GDP mm-hmm. growth. Yeah. But the consequence is you're also increasing the amount that you're paying, that the government's paying on that debt, that 35 in debt. And the impact of that is it tilts in the favor of slowing down the GDP because that's the 100 versus the other impact on the 35, which is a much smaller number. Is that explaining it correctly or? Yeah. And the 35 cents, that debt is being paid by the government Mm -hmm. to the economy. Yep. So that's stimulative. Yep. So let's say you slow the economy down by 5%. That's five bucks, but you pay. 5% 5% more in interest. Well, that's mm. $1.75. $1. Right. So together, you've accomplished a contraction. Fast forward today, when we have, you know, call it for ease of math, debt to GDP is one to one. Yep. So we're trying to slow down the economy. We're trying to break the, the demand. We want to slow this $100 down. At the same time, we have $100 in debt. And that $100 in debt has owners. And we are paying, the government is paying those owners that money, which puts the government in a significant deficit. Well, deficit spending is stimulative. Mm. So 
whilst you're trying to slow down the GDP, you're also increasing the amount of money you're putting into pockets. And the baby boomer generation, some of them have pensions that are indexed. So they're getting more and more money as they go through this, which is, again, they're spending that money. It's a bit stimulative. So you have these two contrary forces that are, you know, because debt is so high, that it paints the Federal Reserve into quite a corner. And we're and so, seeing that play out. And just to go back to this again, what it sounds like is this is kind of a recipe for hyperinflation because the stimulative part in the numerator, which is the debt, is you know big and significant. And the contraction part is trying to, uh, let's say, big and growing. And yeah. the contraction part is equal size and slowing. Is this stagflation? I mean, we had stagflation in the past without this ratio being at risk that it's at. But I'm just curious, does this stagflation or what does this mean? Yeah, it can mean stagflation. It probably means that we're going to see higher rates for longer, Mm -hmm. much longer than most people would ever imagine. And potentially, I'm not sure if it's higher. It might be just a lot longer than people think. Probably is a little higher. We're starting to get to a period where bonds have some attractiveness with respect to the yield that they have. Mm. That curve is, is you start to see the, the bond vigilantes come back again. You're starting to see the long end of the curve steepen, the bear steepener, as they call it. Yep. And that's going to do some work as well for the Fed. So when when the curve was inverted, though, that was, that was challenging. So it'll be interesting mm. to see as the curve reasserts itself to a more normal view. If that doesn't start to take the wind out of the sails a bit more of the economy, then you layer on top of that the geopolitical risks that we have right now. And we have to remember that the last 40 years was an anomaly on a few levels. The first anomaly is that you had interest rates start at whatever, call it 20% and go to zero. All right. So that's predominantly declining interest rates. That's a bond bull market. And when that's occurring, bonds are negatively correlated to stocks, yep. which then the 60-40 portfolio that everyone knows and loves so much does even better. It even has a better sharp ratio. And the sharp ratio peaked back in 2021 of that balanced portfolio. Remember, if it spends a lot of time at a sharp of, call it one, mm. I mean, the sharp in the portfolio is 35. So if you spend a bunch of years at one, in order to get back to the average of 35, you've got to spend some time below that. So, you know, risk-adjusted returns on that portfolio probably going to be significantly lower. Mm-hmm. And again, the risk-adjusted matters because it does affect the withdrawal rate that you could take from the portfolio. So you've got to seek other sources of diversification beyond bonds in the new regime that we have today. And those and other that, diversification, kind of- let's say for some people, they could be like land. And then for others, it could be just uh, it's time to get commodity exposure, or what do you yeah. mean by that? Well, think about think about your diversification. So you can have asset classes that have certain characteristics that diversify mm. the portfolio. That's one. There's also strategies like what we do: manage yep. futures yep. in a systematic way. You know, we we're trading 85 different markets, and we're trading those markets long and short. Right. The challenge there is there's no intuition for that for investors. Investors mm. have an own managed futures products in any kind of significant form for 15 or 20 years. But so there are strategies, there are tail hedging strategies as well, Mm -hmm. strategies that can pay off in the unlikely event of 
of large corrections, which are lovely because those provide cash to invest when things are really bad. Mm. But they do drag on the portfolio for a number of years before they pay out. And there's a behavioral cost to all of these mm. strategies. So you want to think through, okay, what are what are my first level responders? They're just asset classes that perform well. They're easy to buy. They're cheap and yep. cheerful. I do have to think about how I'm balancing them, right? So am I maximizing diversification? Am I maximizing the balance amongst the risk premiums? And am I looking at the portfolio as a whole to understand the diversification or the risk that I'm taking? Right. Or am I letting the, the maniacs run the asylum? If you do those three things, First responders are your asset classes. Second responders could be some strategies that are just have been non-correlated in the past. So systematic managed futures, whether that be trend or that be a more full complement suite of the products, mm. of the factors within that are a good places that have demonstrated to be able to perform in those areas. Long short is okay. The problem with long short is you get a very low vol. So, you know, again, we come back to the initial portfolio it returns 6%, it's got a six vol. Well, if you own 10% of that, that's great. But if your portfolio is down 20, you own 10% of six, you're, you know, the outcome is not that different. Yep. And then you can get into the the last layer of defense, which I would put the, the tail hedging guys at, right. where you, you probably have a negative VIG on that year after year, but you know, every fifth, fourth, third, 12th year, it pays off big. I haven't and gotten so that. I haven't gotten the, the black swan guy on to talk yet my dream was to get talib on but i i, mm -hmm. I made a smart ass comment on his twitter and he blocked me so i maybe there's no hope now so he well says, i think in today's I, I mean he's certainly got some gravitas when it comes to followers and and that sort of thing so you get people to watch there's another phenomenon called the gray rhino which is clear and present danger that's ignored and oh, i forget the author's name she's lovely but like we have several gray rhinos. COVID was a gray rhino. Mm. There's a pandemic happening in China. It was happening in November, December, and January. But in February, everyone decided it mattered. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. that was episode 633. Her name is Michelle Wooker. And we it's talked about exactly gray rhino. That. In fact, Michelle and I had a really nice dinner together on the river here in Bangkok with my mother. It was fantastic. So uh, yeah. Love it. Yeah. And, yeah. and a, a big fan of Michelle's work as well. We, yeah. We've we've chatted with her too. Yeah. But again, I think today's circumstances are much more like a gray rhino than they are a black swan. Mm. Taiwan, is that unknown? Yeah. No. <laughs> Ukraine? No. You know, global geopolitical tension? Mm. Pretty pervasive, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so much to talk about and I appreciate you sharing, you know, all of that. I think that helps all of us to think about it, but now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since oh, no one yeah. goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah. It was early in my career where, you know, as so often you will be entering this business full of enthusiasm and vim and vigor and, you know, that you have infinite capabilities. And, you know, this was, um, this is God, this is going back to 1993, four or five in that era. Anyway, there was, you know, in Canada, there's lots of mining going on and there was some mining stocks and, you know, I'd started in the business that wasn't making a ton of money, but, you know, said, well, you know, I forget what UCR was a similar trade on Vancouver. But anyway, mm. I remember that. I don't remember the name, but I bought it because a guy told me about a thing like, 
exactly the stuff you're not supposed to do. I'm at a urinal and a guy tells me about a stock and I'm like, that sounds amazing. Of all the researching you could do, and I don't think that was the urinal one, but of all the, it was sort of like that. I'm like, what a great idea. And it wins. And I have a couple more wins, but they're not because I'm a genius. It's because that, that area was in fire. And so emboldened with early success and massive ignorance, I wiped all of that out in no time to a zero easily. So mm. the funny thing is about this game is that when you think you know something, I have this weird quirky now, if, if we're doing well, I'm terrified. If we're in drawdown, I'm actually pretty happy because I know both of those end. Mm. <laughs> and, and so I'm always kind of looking ahead going, well, drawdown means people should be getting in. This is actually, this is when you should be excited. Mm. And when you're like, everyone's singing your praises and they're inviting you to cocktail parties and parading you on their shoulders, you need to leave that party because you're going to be cleaning up soon. And the cleaning up is never fun. So, you know, early in the career, doing all the mistakes you could do, buying stocks that I have no idea what they do on tips from people who have no idea what they do. And then actually having a couple of wins to embolden you to put more money in and then it just being eviscerated. Like, it's just the, it's the best lesson ever. It's just so good. <laughs> can can so, you remember a, a day when it was like back in those days where you're like, I got to stop this or something's wrong or something like that. No, I think I was so stupid that, that I was just, I just thought I, you know, I don't understand why it's not working. It mm. always works. I would right. do this and it would work. And I would do this and it would work. And I would do this and it would work. And then I did it and it didn't work. Well, of course I just averaged down. Of course, that's what you would do at that point. You would just add more money You'd put more mm. money in. So, you know, I didn't just lose the capital I started with and build it. I built it up and said, well, this is working. I'm a genius, of course. And that just twittered away to nothing. Like, I mean, uh, Twitter, maybe that's yes. not the right word. Anyway, dwindled away to nothing. Right. The companies that were left in that portfolio were all delisted and gone. <laughs> Moose Pasture Resources Special. Anyway, uh -huh. so just because you're winning doesn't mean you're smart or you're good at these things. So mm. that that led me through some journey of introspection, led me to be a lot more systematic. You know, yeah. what is it that I'm investing in? What should the bet size be? How much risk am I willing to take? And, you know, it really is people have to look at their, their personality types. Because mm. I've seen a lot of investors who've done very well ignoring risk, but they've also ignored it in, you know, companies that were much more major than the silly nonsense that I was looking at in those early days. Yeah. But that still doesn't guarantee anything. You know, we've, yeah. you've, you've had GE do exceptionally well and then do nothing for 20 years. Pfizer was another one. All of them go through these long periods of quiet times. Yeah. And, you know, by the time your buddy tells you about it or the cab guy tells you about it, like... Really? Yeah. What's the edge? By the time it's in the media, if the investment idea you have is on the Today Show, you know, make sure your stops are tight. Too late. Too late. <laughs> I think you're you're getting the last people in on that one, but make yeah. sure your stop is good and tight. Exactly. Or CNBC. So one of my takeaways, I was just visualizing like the market is a hornet's nest of activity and everybody is competing against each other. And there's some very brilliant people on the other side of every trade. 
And mm -hmm. if you're an amateur and you decide to, hey, I'm just going to put my my hand in this hornet's nest without any protection, without any risk management, without a glove or anything like that or a suit, it's just guaranteed you're going to get stung. And so this is a great story that helps everybody, particularly in the beginning, who's saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start. I found some really interesting things. Make sure you've got some protection on before you go into that hornet's nest, because particularly when you don't know much about it, it can be brutal. Now, let me ask you, based on what you learned from this story and what you've continued to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I think that it does start with diversification, right? It, it does start with, you know, kind of thinking, just remembering that you don't know as much as you think you know. Mm. Right. It, come back to our earlier discussion. You're standing there with a handful of sand, and you think that is the world. And you, but you're standing on a beach, and you don't even see the beach. So, what does that mean that you should do? Well, it means you know maybe you should diversify. Maybe you should be less confident. Maybe you should manage risk with stop losses. Maybe you should manage risk at the portfolio level on an ongoing basis. There are a number of ways to take this approach, mm. to take different approaches. So there's, you know, I'm not being totally prescriptive and saying you must do this. I think the answers lie within, like mm. understand what kind of an investor you are. Can you withstand 90% decline? Can you buy Amazon and get three 90% declines? Can you buy something and ignore it? You know, I had a client who was getting a, a quarterly dividend that was her ACB on Royal Bank in Canada. Why? Because she owned it for 50 years. She never blinked ever. World War, whatever, you know, <laughs> pestilence, yeah. you know, comet, wipe out the, didn't care, don't care, ignore, ignore, ignore. And, you know, this is the thing between individual securities and more index-based things. Indexes right. don't tend to go bankrupt. I mean, we have some examples. Russia closed their stock market and, you know, there are examples of that. But if you think about it through a global lens, you can own those assets for a very long time, but they will go through long periods of underperformance. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so you think about your taxes, but think about how you would, you know, what's your internal preference? Can you be honest with yourself? Are you someone who's super nervous at the first sign of trouble loses? I know a lot of great investors that that's their thing. I mean, they get a whisper and they're, they're out of everything in two seconds. Mm -hmm. Now there's a cost to that as well. But, you know, if you know, that's kind of your proclivity, then, you know, the answers lie within, I would say, yeah, yeah. largely. But they, you know, there's some big block. Don't over leverage. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. You know. And for the listeners out there, the book that you're referencing is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. And yeah. he he brought that book out in about 1970s, you know, mid-1970s. He didn't think it was going to be much of a hit, but it ended up selling about five million copies in its initial launch. Unbelievable. Yeah, it cult classic. It's a wonderful yeah. book too. Yeah, it's a, a book. it is a lot about that looking inward and and there's a twist at the end. It's if if listeners haven't read it, that is actually a wonderful book to read. Yeah, there's I'm gonna put a, a link in the of, show notes for that one too, along with your book. So but let's uh, let me ask you, what's a resource that you'd recommend for our listener? I mean, first thing is who is your book written for and who should get it to learn more about the topic? So our book is written for pretty much, I think your listener, it goes mm -hmm. through steps that you would take, first of all, to maximize diversification, how you might use the factor of momentum to enhance that. So mm. how might we add 
prediction to preparation. So a tilting, a weighted tilt. So you're prepared because you've got this global Mm -hmm. asset allocation framework, you've got commodities, you've got long bonds, you've got all of these asset classes that perform in these different circumstances. And then we tilt that with momentum, a well-known factor that helps performance. Owning more of what's you know done well. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Own less of what's done really badly. Mm. That's how you should do it. You don't really need to own more of what's done really well. Just own less of what's dragging on the portfolio from a momentum factor. That enhances returns. It just gives you a framework to think through what we're talking about today. Right. Well, and, we'll and have. I think that that would be very a, a very helpful place for people to start, and it also contemplates the financial planning side of it too, where right. you know investing has a, a means. I mean, there's a, there, there's a means to an end. The end is that you're foregoing consumption today. So at some point down the road, when you aren't working or don't want to work anymore, you can use up that consumption. Yeah, And withdrawing from that portfolio has some consequences as well. So I'll have links to that in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen, to adaptive asset allocation. And here's a little thing on, on the Amazon, which says, It walks you through a uniquely objective and unbiased investment philosophy and provides clear guidelines for execution. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My number one goal for the next 12 months is to get my firm to a billion and a half in assets. (laughs) That's That's exciting. uh, It's a very selfish goal, but that's what it is, yes. Mm, I think so too. And where where do you think that's going to come from? What are the, the type of people that would be that would want to put their money into that? Well, I think that we might have some tailwinds for all the Mm -hmm. reasons we've talked about today, that there are certain types of diversification that may not work as well. And so, you know, as that plays out, I think we'll attract more attention in the return stacked universe Mm -hmm. or return stacked portfolio solutions. We have model portfolios and basically there we're stacking or take a beta, stock beta, bond beta and stack on top of it a managed futures trend following replication strategy. That's goal is to replicate the trend index. And those managed futures trend indexes tend to have those diversifying effects Mm. that we talked about and we think are going to become more and more important. So we are seeing advisors and investors today pay more attention to the geopolitical and macro framework that's going on. And they are experiencing the lack of diversity they're getting from their bond portfolio. And and so they're starting to look at these products. And so the products are are not high fee, they're lower fee, they're a beta, plus a tracking of a strategy that typically has done well in times like this. The 70s were a wonderful time for trend following and managed futures. So I think that will be a good source of returns and learning. We just launched those this year. So we're excited about the opportunity for what those might bring. And then we have some other products as well. And what's the best um, place for people to go to? I mean, obviously to follow you is one thing, but the other is just to learn about yep. the strategies. Investresolve.com and then return stacked ETFs and return stacked portfolio solutions.com. Fantastic. And Whoa. that'll that'll give you lots of learning as well. And one of the books I read that was, it was, uh, it's a book from the seventies mm. and it's a very small book. Right. Oh, it's the Tao of the Tao of leadership. Um, or what is that? Uh, no, it's it's yeah. asset management, but it's right. it's a very Zen take on how you would manage your portfolio. Mm. And I think that's kind of a wonderful, neat, quirky book that is very interesting. Right. It's out of print too. The and, Tao uh, of wealth management. Mm, I don't know. I got to look for that. 
I have it on my yeah. bookshelf. It's just not here. It's just in the other. But it's a good. So if you want, I can grab it for you. Well, it's entertaining and small. Let's get it afterwards. I'll you send me the link and then I'll put it in the show yeah. notes so people got it. All right, listeners. There you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I think we've made a step forward today. As we conclude, Mike, I want to thank you again for joining the mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah. Stay true to yourself. Beautiful. Beautiful. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.